This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Testing. I'm good. Okay. Good morning. Good morning. Did you have a good sleep? Good drive up? I want to say thank you for the hospitality that you have shown to me and my co-worker, Jeannie. We uh, feel, felt totally at home here. And uh, when you come to Singapore, I hope that you also feel very at home with my home church called St. James Church. Is Jim Foster still here? Oh, hi. Good. Can I tell them the story? <laughs> 17 years ago. Yeah. So. <laughs> Did you have an audience that day? No, just like this. Oh, okay. We let's give him a belated applause. Yeah. It reminds me of this vicar who shot two hole in one. But there was no audience that he couldn't tell anybody because he played golf on Sunday morning. Anybody else have a good Anglican joke? <laughs> I, I ran out since my last one. Uh, even the last one was borrowed from the Presbyterian. <laughs> I knew that ACNA has finished your prayer book. I've seen it. It's really good. And Joel just told me that the catechism will be published in January. I think the next good book is the Anglican joke book. Yeah, uh, today we're going to talk about the church that surprised the world. The Anglican church that surprised the world. That could be the first entry to this joke book. <laughs> All of you are such good listeners. I'm so impressed. Uh, you, you remember the hamburger. And somebody was really creative last night, and you made a Kaya steak s'more. <laughs> it was you. <laughs> right. So on Friday, we learned about how we relate to God with a childlike faith. To enter the kingdom of God with a childlike faith, how our relationship to God, and the two negative illustrations. Yep, A and B, the Pharisees and the rich young ruler. They could have entered the kingdom of God if they entered it like a child who rely on the mercy and authority of God. And then the A prime and the B was Zacchaeus and the blind beggar, the man who couldn't see but he saw Jesus of Nazareth as the son of David which is really the gospel at the heart of it. Jesus will be tortured, died, and rose again. 
and those who believe that this is indeed the Son of God shall receive the kingdom of God. Now today we are looking at Luke 7, verse 36 to 50, the story of how Jesus related to this um, sinful woman and a Pharisee named Simon. And we want to learn something about how the church ought to relate to the world around us. Last Friday, we took a chunk of scripture to look at the pattern. But today, we're going to chew on one particular passage, which is this passage. And uh, we, we, we want to be nourished by just this meditation of this passage alone, a church that surprised the world. In the 90s, there was a movement started by a youth group at Calvary Reformed Church in Michigan. Uh, this youth leader's name, Jenny, it was meant to be a simple, what would Jesus do? A uh, simple phrase to help young uh, teenagers to be conscious, uh, to live a life as Christ's instrument to reflect his nature to the world around through practical actions that would make a difference in society. Now, this idea has some theological, theological and historical foundation. Paul says, imitate me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And Thomas Akempis wrote a book, The Imitation of Christ in 1418. And Charles Sheldon wrote in his step in 1896 or along the same understanding. However, what would Jesus do premise on two things? First, that we know Christ. Otherwise, who do we imitate? We may be imitating an imaginable imagination of Christ, which may not be Christ, it is very popular today to emphasize that God is love, Jesus is love. But we put love so high on the agenda that love has become an idol. God is love, but love is not God. When love becomes an idol, it's used to justify everything. In the 60s and 70s, love was used to justify casual sex. In our age, it's used to justify, justify all kinds of unnatural relationships. And we neglect the fundamental character of God, which is holy. The angels cry, holy, holy, holy. Not love, love, love. Love needs to be preceded with an adjective called holy. Otherwise, we thought we are imitating Christ, but we really do not know Christ. It is our idea of Christ echoed by the crowd. The second assumption of what would Jesus do is that we can actually imitate Christ, but we cannot because we are not Christ. We are just followers of Christ. So when Jesus proclaimed to this woman, your sins are forgiven, go in peace, can you say the same thing? We can only proclaim the forgiveness of Christ in Jesus' name. We can't do it ourselves. When Jesus used that word, the Jewish crowd was so angry 
that you, a mere man, put yourself in the position of God to say your sins are forgiven. So while we are inspired to imitate Christ, we must, we must remember these two things. We must know Christ, and we are a follower of Christ, not Christ. Don't behave like Christ. Nevertheless, the Scripture says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 3.10 tells us that God chose to make known His manifold wisdom through the church, through the rulers and authorities in the, king, in the heavenly places. In other words, it is the will of God to make known His manifold wisdom through the church, that is us, as we are being transformed into the image of Christ from glory to glory. So as we look at Luke chapter 7, don't merely seek to imitate Christ, but seek to know Christ. Encounter Him in this story. Allow His Spirit to transform us into His image more and more. Perhaps the world will be surprised by you and me when they encounter Christ to you and me. So let's begin at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. This is Luke 7. In Luke 5, two chapters before this, 5.29, Jesus was dining with Levi and a bunch of tax collectors. The Pharisee wasn't too pleased about that. So now Jesus is dining with the Pharisee instead. Tax collector, Pharisee, was Jesus bipartisan? <laughs> or was there something deeper? I'm not sure whether children here is like children back home. If there are two Indian chiefs on the playground, the rest of the kids need, need, kids need to choose side. Yeah? If you are for me, you must be against him. Yeah? You friend me, I know friend you. You friend me, you know friend him. This is a single, Singapore way, very economical way to speak. So one thing you must learn, don't expect Jesus to take side and be on your side. You have to ask, are you on Jesus' side? So you'll be disappointed, uh, futile to speculate whether Jesus is a Republican or Democrat. Don't be surprised he'll be in both sides and has things to, so to speak to both sides. Is that okay? So a church that surprised the world, firstly, crosses boundary where society segregates. Crosses boundary where society segregates. God called the church, like he called Jonah, to enter into hostile territory that the hostile may be given a chance to return to God. The whole earth is the Lord's, including territory hostile to the gospel. And that is very uncomfortable to us. we rather preserve our dignity, remain in safe territory among people of the same value, same mind, crooning familiar tunes in an echo chamber. But Jesus felt as free to dine with the tax collector as he would dine with the Pharisee. 
Interestingly, when Jesus dined with the Pharisee, sinners like this sinful woman felt the courage to enter the Pharisee's house. I don't think on a normal day, this woman would venture into the Pharisee's house. Who liked to be ridiculed, despised? Nobody likes that. But just because Jesus was dining with the Pharisee, this sinful woman didn't feel that Jesus was this holy kind in the company of the Pharisee and begin to distance herself away. Instead, she felt safe to venture into this oppressive territory. If the church has become a holy club, perhaps we need the presence of Jesus for sinners to feel safe enough to venture into the church. What about this Jesus that emboldened and empowered a sinful person that way? I think firstly, sinners are absolutely confident that Jesus is for them even in the face of hostility. Sinners are absolutely confident that if they were ridiculed, Jesus would not switch side to the stronger oppressor. They are absolutely confident that Jesus will stand up for them. And secondly, they are confident that Jesus could stand up to the Pharisee. And Jesus would not be forced to be defeated to withdraw from the Pharisee in order to maintain solidarity with the sinful. So sin, the sinners are absolutely confident in Jesus because they knew that Jesus will stand up for them and can stand up for them. There are two things that Jesus said that seems contradictory. The first one in Matthew chapter 12, verse 13. Whoever is not with me is against me. Are you familiar with that? And then Mark chapter 8, verse 40, for one who is not against us is for us. Now, which one do you apply in hostile territory? If you look at the context of both, both were related to casting out demons. Okay? Mark 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. The Pharisees were accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub the prince of demons. Where else in Mark chapter 8, verse 40, the one who is not against us is for us, was the disciples complaining to Jesus. Some of those who were not of their company were casting out demons in Jesus' name. So Jesus says, those who are not against us is for us. So Mark chapter 8 shows us how broad and accepting Jesus was. Anyone who acknowledges my name, uses my name for ministry, to see the power of God at work, do not exclude them just because they did not come from the same Bible school, same denomination, or in our alliance, or an employing a different approach to address a common problem. The crucial question is, do you acknowledge my authority over demons is of God. If they do, they are for Jesus. And hopefully, we too are for Jesus. 
On the other hand, Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 seems narrow. Whoever is not with me is against me. Sounds so dictatorial. Imagine your rector uses on the vestry. Whoever is not with me is against me. <laughs> and Jesus seems narrow in this instance because this group of Pharisees was blaspheming the Holy Spirit that Jesus' authority was of the devil. And Jesus went on to say in verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Whoever is not with me is against me. Now you must understand that Pharisees are not homogeneous group of people. There are people like, Zac, uh, like, like uh, Nicodemus, who are the inquirers, uh, and there are also Pharisees that Jesus proclaimed the seven woes uh, in Matthew 23. And I, I think Jesus has no problem crossing over to both types of Pharisee, but his engagement with them would be different. I want to leave it as that um, for you to look at the scripture, how different he engaged with different types of Pharisees. Because this is not our focus today. We are going to move on. A church that surprised the world, firstly, cross over to the part of society when society segregates, right? Second, a church that surprised the world believes sinners too can worship God. Believes that sinners too can worship God. Verse 37 to 39. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiping them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So this unnamed woman who came to Jesus had a reputation. Simon the Pharisee knew she was a sinner, as would many people in the town, quite probably a town prostitute. And Jesus knew that too. Because in verse 47, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. So Jesus wasn't, Jesus wasn't ignoring her sins, nor glossing over her sins, but Jesus saw her heart. This sinner was a worshipper. And Simon, on the other hand, had a theology that the holy and the sinful has no fellowship. Light and darkness cannot coexist. And the holy would be defiled if they associate themselves with a the sinner. So this woman approached Jesus from behind, not in front, not intending to draw attention to herself. She stood near Jesus' feet, 
probably overcame by emotion and started weeping. Now, you must understand that this is dining Middle Eastern style in those days. It's not French dining. It's not even Leonardo da Vinci Last Supper with a table and chair. It was low table in a U-shape. In the middle, people could come and serve food. And the guests sat around, not sat around, reclined around the table with a left hand, this way, yeah, this way, uh, with a low cushion. And the feet is pointing away from the table. So this woman came at her feet quietly. Don't ask me whether it's comfortable. <laughs> But with practice, I suppose it's very comfortable. Uh, and what was this woman weeping about? It must be quite a heartfelt cry. There was enough tears to wet Jesus' feet. Why? Why do people cry buckets? Pain could be one. A dumbbell fell on her toes. Distress could be the other one. Lose someone, losing someone special, something special. Watching your house burn and your dog is still inside. Distressing. Anger, suffering injustice, being bullied, shame, especially if you are also helpless. Regretful, awful past mistake you wish you could undo but you can't or moved emotionally, mixture of joy, gratefulness for mercy and grace that we received. Now, of all this emotion, which one may be the reason this woman was weeping? I think we can take the first one out. A dumbbell didn't fall on her toes. Uh, Luke didn't tell us, but I guess it was probably a life of Painful regret at the same time, moved by a magnanimous love. Much like the prodigal son returning to the waiting father, and I can't imagine an emotionless reunion. There'll be tears all over for that grateful love of the father who welcomed the son. Most Bible commentators say that it's quite likely this woman has already encountered Jesus. She came to express her deep gratitude. Her weeping was not one of self-absorbed, self-pity, not like Judah who went out to hang himself, to hang himself, but she expressed it in a devotion of love. Her grief, her regret has found a resolution literally at the feet of Jesus. Washing the guest's feet was a basic hospitality, usually done by the lowest servant of the house. This woman washed Jesus' feet, not with a pail of water, but with her own tears. Wiped Jesus' feet not with a towel, but with her own hair. She poured the whole of herself to serve Jesus with her own tears and her own hair, tears that were so deep, a deep outpouring of speechless gratefulness. 
white people untied hair, untied hair in the public, in their culture, is letting go of one, one's honor. Just like today's culture, a Muslim woman who re removed their hijab in public in certain culture today. And like many Eastern culture, the feet is the lowest part of the body, which is considered the part with the lowest honor. And the head is the par part of the person with the highest honor, considered sacred. For instance, in Thai culture, they do not use their feet to do anything. They don't use their feet to move chairs or to point at things. So when they sit, they are careful not to point their toe to another person. That is insulting. A lower part of the body to point to another person. And a young child and a woman would never touch the head of a senior because you are using your hand to touch a sacred part of a man's head, which is absolutely no-no. Now look at this woman. This woman used the most sacred part of her body, her hair, to wipe the lowest part of Jesus' body, his feet. And that was how high an honour she gave Jesus and how low he, she crouched to serve Jesus. Then she kissed Jesus' feet. Kisses were usually exchanged on the face as a sign of peace and love between man and man, woman and woman. Greet each other with holy kiss as we will share peace in our service today. And 1 Peter 5.14 specifically say, greet one another with the kiss of love. So peace and love is language of bonding fellowship. And this woman kissed Jesus' feet, not his face. From serving Jesus, this woman entered into that deep bonding of fellowship, a humble bonding of fellowship, of peace and love. And then she anointed Jesus' feet with the ointment. Anointing had three purposes in the Bible, either for healing or health, a sign of honour, or for consecration. So in this context, the purpose really was a sign of honour. It wasn't he healing for Jesus. And this woman honoured Jesus humbly by anointing his feet, not as an equal, like the host in the house, that Simon should have anointed Jesus' head yeah, using his hand. But this woman anointed Jesus' feet as an unworthy worshipper. All three actions were acts of devoted worship. A humble person come before the assaulted Lord to serve him, to commune with him, to honour him as an unworthy servant. Jesus didn't retract his feet. Would you have felt uncomfortable and embarrassed if you were Jesus? 
if you do, there is nothing questionable about you because that's how all of us would have reacted. But Jesus relished her devotion, made space for the whole drama to unfold. Certainly everyone present questioned in their mind, what was Jesus thinking? And Simon thought silently in his heart, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who was touching him, a sinner. You observe two phenomena that day. The audacity of a sinful woman to approach a holy man and the outrageous accommodation Jesus made for her. Jesus and the woman became questionable that day. Why? Because the theological and social norm held by everybody else in the room was that sinful woman has no place in the company of the holy. Hans Kung, in his book, The Church, expound on the one holy Catholic apostolic church. He asked the question, is the church communal sectorium or communal peccatorium? Is the church a communion of saints or a communion of sinners? What do you think? <laughs> the Pharisee thought the former. The lawless thought the latter. Yeah, we are all sinful anyway. Let's just tolerate sin so that grace may abound. The church is both. Both a communion of sins and a communion of sinners, uh, of saints and sinners. The church is the communion of sinners, which through the grace of God is really and truly the communion of saints. The grace of God through Jesus brings into reality the possibility of the communion of sinners who become who is becoming the communion of saints. So that day, if Jesus wasn't present in the dining room, the grace of God not present, and without the grace of God, this woman would have no access to worship. But with the presence of the grace of God, the self-assured saints in the room now become the questionable. The whole thing was turned around by the presence of Jesus. So a church that surprised the world has a generous presence of grace of God and Jesus is in her midst. And a church that surprised the world believes that sinners too could worship God and be part of this communion of forgiven sinners who are being made saints. So we have two. First, a church that surprised the world crosses boundary when society segregates. Secondly, believes that sinners too can worship God. And thirdly, a church that surprised the world practices love that the world does not understand. Verse 31 to, 41 to 47, a certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other one 50, and they could not pay. He cancelled the debt of both. Which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled larger debt. 
And he said to him, You judge correctly. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no uh, kiss, but from the time I enter, she has not ceased kiss to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, and she's for, uh, for she loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. Now, without the presence of the grace of God today, the action of this unnamed woman could be totally misunderstood. Her tears could be inconsequential tears. And her hair job could be misunderstood as a seductive move. And her kiss would be misunderstood as outrageous affection. Her anointing oil would be misunderstood as presumptuous piety. But with the presence of the grace of God in Jesus, these were expressions of love unparalleled. A church that surprised the world practices love that the world do not understand. In Bangkok, uh, a place that Jonathan and the team has visited, a place called Cornerstone Student Centre, uh, it's a place that the university students come in to uh, have conversation classes with our volunteers. The very common story we hear after some time is the student will ask, who pay you to be here? And they say, well, nobody pay us. And when they ask further, they discover that these mission volunteers, some of them gave up a year of their job just to be with the students. And this blew their mind. They can't understand what kind of God this is that they are willing to sacrifice a well-paying career just to be with them. And that opens the door to conversation. That we are paying it forward. We love in a, world, in a way the world do not understand because God has loved us in a way that the world do not understand. So that is our expression of gratefulness. And this woman's uncovered hair was actually very vulnerable. It's a kind of vulnerable love that she Love risks rejection. Love attracts criticism sometimes. And love sometimes contravenes the social norm. You know, when William Wilberforce risked his whole political career to fight for the ab abolition of slavery because of his evangelical conviction. In those days, evangelical, including evangelical in high society, were subject to contempt and ridicule. But he sends a call to devote his life to two things, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners, its moral value in society. And you know, he wasn't fighting it for himself. 
unlike many lobby groups today who champion change of norms for self-indulgent and self-serving purposes, but he was speaking on behalf of those slaves in West Indies whose plight otherwise the public wouldn't know. And his whole life was spent calling society to give up their self-serving oppressive trade. And in those days, 1783, it constituted 80% of UK's income. It's not easy. 80% of UK's income. It was a long march of close to 50 years. Finally, 1833, three days before his death, the Bill of Abolition of Slavery was passed. This was the love of the uncovered hair. The world do not understand, which risked rejection, criticism, ridicule. What devotion. Kiss of peace and love. Another ministry that the world do not understand. Another love that the world do not understand. So not just the tears fell from her eyes, not just the hair from her scalp. Now, her lips, the most personal, public part of the body, she used it to kiss the lowest part of Jesus' body that the earth soiled. And you read the scripture carefully, he continued to kiss. It's not just a... Just, a, just continue to kiss... This is where the tire hits the road. In the world of constant strife, earth stained with spilled blood, dividing boundaries, boundary challenging us to take sides, the church comes with a kiss of peace and love to mend ties, to bandage wounds, to heal fractures. South Sudan gained their independence in 2011. And you thought that would be the end of strife in Sudan, where the majority Muslim, majority Christian are separated. But sadly, South Sudan, which is majority Muslim, hasn't ceased from uh, civil war since then. And 4 million people are displaced, 1.5 million internally, 2.5 million in neighboring countries, 300% annual inflation. Many uh, uh, peace agreement were brokered and signed. Last April, the Pope invited the president, the opposition, and two other leaders of this tribal faction to come to the Vatican. Do you know what the Pope did? He broke with protocols. He came out into the room where all of them were standing he knelt down to kiss their feet one by one, one by one. Actually, you can search the YouTube to look at that. One month later, the president of South Sudan shared that he was so shaken inside by what the Pope did, a kiss on his feet. So he invited the opposition leader to return from exile from Khartoum. And this leader has just returned in early September. Let's continue to pray. 
that that kiss of peace and love will finally break that fractured society and bring about the reconciliation that is needed. And finally, the anointing oil offering the highest honour. The church cannot surprise the world with the love for God so ordinary as you would love your cat. Would you be surprised if there are people who spend more money on the cat than the money they give to God? I'm just using cat as an example. I mean, it can apply to men who polish their car for hours on Sunday morning instead of going to church, more screen time than Bible time and so on. You get what I mean? Yeah. What does your honouring of God, how does it surprise the world? For some Christians, it means refusing to be pressured into bribery because you love the Lord more. For some Christians, it means whistleblowing at the risk of your job because you love the Lord more. When you're faced with a choice, what would you do? Maybe we should carry around us a bottle of anointing oil in our pocket. When we are faced with a situation, who do I honour more? Who do I pour this anointing oil on? Jesus or the others? So this was a kind of anointing oil, highest honour to God. So three things, if you remember. Crosses boundary where society segregates, believes that sinners too can worship God, and practices love that the world does not understand. And as a church, if we have segregated ourselves to safe zone for self-protection, so safe that sometimes we keep Jesus out, the challenge before us is to cross boundary where society segregates. As a church, if we have portrayed ourselves to be that unapproachable holy people, sinners do not think the church is a place for them, the challenge before us, before us is to be a communion of redeemed saints, so overflowing the grace of Jesus that sinners are comfortable to draw near to worship God. As a church, are we too cushioned, so comfortable against injury, we are more accustomed to sentimental love instead of sacrificial love? Love that the world do not understand, love that expressed by tears of gratitude, uncovered hair of vulnerability, the kiss of peace and love, and the sacrificial offering to honour God. I've been very encouraged in my fellowship with you. You are a vibrant church, passionate to want to live for Jesus. Uh, I just read the book that Debbie wrote on life of precious, precious Caris. Such deep devotion. And that is an example of the power of the cross we are talking about. A cross that they carry in very difficult times, sometimes we don't understand, but real. 
And it's amazing to read some of the entry journal of this young child when he was still a, she was still a child and as she grew old, the kind of wrestling, the realness. These are the heritage in your midst. These are the foundation you share in this fellowship. So that as you reach out, you know that you have a root among yourselves, so totally rooted in Jesus. As you trust God in Jesus, trust Him also to reflect all these things that the world do not understand, the things that surprise the world. Let it shine. Let it shine. And God will do surprising things, more surprising things to you, through you. Shall we go to the Lord in prayer? Jesus, we thank you. You came to our midst and we could be like the sinful woman and absolutely confident that we can be with you wherever you are, even in hostile territory. And to receive the comfort of your forgiving love. No matter what our past is, it doesn't surprise you, but you surprise the world by the way you receive us. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit that the image of Christ grow in us more and more. Lord Jesus, this is our heart desire, Lord, to glorify you by shining for you. Thank you, Father. Do your work in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.